Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Richard II. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Welcome to Retractor, reviewing all the kings and queens from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. Um, and this week, Richard II. Yes. Now, I'm a bit blurry on him, I've got to admit it. Um, yeah, grey area. Mm, well, let's oh, fill in that yeah. grey area. So, this week we're doing Richard II, uh, born 1367, son of Edward Woodstock, better known as the Black Prince, oh, and yes. Joan of Kent. So, he is the grandson of our previous king, Edward III. Which was the first time that had happened. Yeah, so he's the son of the eldest son. So the son's line continues, even if the father dies yeah. before the grandfather. Becomes king in 1377, so he's only about ten years old. So we've got another Uh-oh. minority. Yeah, not good. Always spells trouble. And he's the 16th great-grand-uncle of Elizabeth II. Oh dear, that's getting a bit tangent there. Indeed, not quite as direct. Um, he's the first king for whom we've got a realistic sort of Renaissance uh, paintings and images now, someone asked this, didn't they? They um, did indeed. That, and so, what, 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 what year is this? 1367? Well, he becomes king in 1377, but it's probably sort of 1390s where we start to get the painting. So there's a life-size one at Westminster Abbey. Oh, we should, I'll put that up on the Facebook page, that's a good one. So he's the first English king to show a real interest in his image, and we've got more likenesses of him than for any other ruler pre-Henry VIII. This is a good picture, because for once his hands aren't three times the size of his head, or it's all 2D. Yeah, so as I say, it's that sort of more Renaissance style mm. of actual realistic capture, so it's more or less what mm. he looked like. Yeah, right. So he's sort of fair-haired, considered beautiful, with a white rounded face, i.e. a little bit feminine. Right. And he deliberately fostered a quite youthful image, so he kept largely clean-shaven in an age when beards were very fashionable. That's weird, because his, his gra- great-grandfather... Edward II, he um, he was uh, chastised for not being manly enough. Not manly enough in his pursuits, but in uh, his appearance okay. he looked manly. Whereas yeah. um, Edward, he's, uh, Richard, he's athletic, he's tall, about six foot, with that long sort of plantagenet face. Um, his accession is only ten years old, so we've got a minority. Now, when we had that under Henry III, we had William Marshall to unite the country as regent Legend, and be yeah. legendary and heroic. For Richard, the obvious figure is his eldest uncle, John of Gaunt, but he's quite an unpopular figure at court. They don't trust right. him. So a regency council is set up, although Gaunt and the other uncles still exert a lot of influence. Uh, oh, that's good. So it's tempered a bit, so you're not going to have this tyrant. Indeed. Mm. Um, his coronation is a great spectacle as Richard goes on this sort of triumph from the Tower of London to uh, Westminster, along a route galed with colourful regalia, trumpets blaring... All sorts of things. Even a mechanical angel, apparently. Really? Which lowered the crown wow. onto his head. Wow. It's quite sophisticated stuff. Oh, it was quite a lengthy and intensive ceremony, so apparently because he was quite young, he started falling asleep. And had so they brought out the angel. Look at this, look at this. And he married, um, 1382, a few years later, to Anne of Bohemia, which is modern Czech Republic. Oh, right. Um, and married quite unpopular, because apparently she didn't have a dowry. So they actually had to loan her brother £15,000. Just to give back? <laughs> yeah. That's a weird protocol, isn't it? Why, um, why the Czech Republic? I thought we were trying to get in with the French a bit more there. 
Well, they more French lens. Well, we had been going with the French, but then we've got the Hundred Years' War going on, so yeah, French yeah. relations not, not at their all-time high okay. at the moment. So they're looking elsewhere for relations in Europe. Right, yeah. Um, however, big thing. First thing is the Peasants' Revolt. Ah, see, thirteen eighty-one. <laughs> um, one of the most famous um, events, probably in medieval period, one of mm. the most significant, and it's the first real uprising of the common man. Yeah, and as you mentioned last time or the time before. Possibly brought on by the plague. Yeah, so the origins, we've got the Black Death as one of the things where the lords were trying to restrict peasants in terms of limiting their wages and limiting migration. Because obviously less people meant the wages were going up, yeah. people were moving to get better jobs, but the lords were trying to restrict it, which obviously they don't like. Also, more direct cause were poll taxes. Oh. Always caused problems. They'd been levying them from 1377. They allowed some people to pay a reduced rate, for others had to pay the full rate. That so wasn't very fair. No. And people weren't too happy about it. No. And as well, there were lots of grievances, like there was nothing to show for the taxes. They'd had years of military failure against France, land and at sea. And his ministers were unpopular, so there was a sense that Richard was being poorly advised. So it's pretty 1980s in... Very 1980s, yes. Unpopular ministers. Everyone loved taxes. Thatcher, but they just thought all the <laughs> Nigel Lawson, etc. poor advisers. Of course, Richard is only uh, 14 at this point. So, its development, it starts off in uh, Essex, oh, in cool. uh, Fobbing, which is sort of in Brentwood area. Oh, yeah. and violence breaks out when some government men are sent to collect taxes. And then the rebellion spreads across Essex and across Kent... Apparently it's very well united and coordinated, so the Essex and Kent rebels are working together, the leadership, all sort of coordinating with each other, so they know what they're doing. It's not just lots of random right. factions going on. So, um, my other bit of uh, yeah. knowledge coming in here, what Tyler was an Essex man? What Tyler emerges is sort of charismatic leader, so he links in with the rebel leaders in Kent and Essex to mm-hmm. give them a bit of direction and cohesion. But he's sort of claimed by both, so Essex say that he was born there, he was an Essex man. I'm claiming him. But he probably moved to Kent and originated from there. So he led the Kent rebels to Blackheath in London and released a radical preacher of the time called John Ball. And then Jack Straw was the one who was said to have led the Essex rebels. So he led them from Great Baddow to Stepney. His identity is a bit uncertain. Sometimes thought he might just have been an alias for what Tyler, because they all used aliases. Yeah. So he might not have been a real person. Jack Straw does sound like a bit like a made up name. I understand there are people called Jack Straw like Jack Straw from the Labour Party but... The, uh, Jack Straw from the Labour Party is actually called John Straw. Jack is, is a nickname. Yeah, presumably see, in reference to the Peasants' Revolt. And the other big person, the other big leader, as you just said that preacher, John Ball. And after he'd been released in London he delivered um, this famous speech which went When Adam delved and Eve span, who was then the gentleman? From the beginning, all men by nature were created alike, and our bondage or servitude came in by the unjust oppression of naughty men. And therefore I exhort you to consider that now the time is come, appointed to us by God, in which ye may, if ye will, cast off the yoke of bondage and recover liberty. Wow, an early Marxist? Um, he's a Lollard preacher at the time, which is right. sort of slightly unspecific... Um, religious movement who are sort of against some of the ways the Catholic Church teaches things. They don't have their own doctrine as such. Right. But they believe in going back to the scriptures and getting away from yeah. the organised religion. But yeah, it's a very strong message mm, of rebellion is, yeah. and freedom. And it's a very serious threat. It sort of numbers several thousand by sort of June when they're doing this. And much of the English army is away in Scotland, in France, in Wales. So they're yeah. not actually able to take them on. 
And I can't really guarantee the loyalty of the Londoners either. The Londoners hate the royalties. He's Londoners a real problem. Um, they try to get a negotiation. Richard's going to meet them, landing at Rotherhive by boat. But it was considered too dangerous in terms of how uh, rowdy everyone was looking. So they didn't. They left. And the rebels didn't like it. They got incensed. They were running out of provisions. So, thanks to somebody lowering the drawbridge in London, they entered the city. And they went on the rampage and plundered the residences of the unpopular ministers, burnt down John Gaunt's uh, Savoy Palace, and they murdered the Chancellor, who was uh, Simon Sudbury, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and also the Lord's High Treasurer, Robert Hales. So they're doing some pretty pretty violence. And Richard and his council are forced to watch the events from the safety of the Tower of London. Literally up the tower, looking down, going, God, everyone's burning stuff. Mm. Very scary. So... They decide to negotiate. At mile end, Richard rides out, meets with Wat Tyler. He consents to their demands, which include abolition of serfdom, fixed low rent for land, and an amnesty for all of the rebels. Many of them then go home, but a hardcore group led by Tyler stay. More violence follows, and they're not convinced, they're not happy, they want more results. Why? They're not convinced that... It's going to happen, basically. So, they meet again, this time at Smithfield. So Richard and Wat Tyler come into the middle of this large field with troops either side some distance apart. Wat Tyler was said to behave very arrogantly in the king's presence, demanded water, demanded ale, then spat sort of forwards, roughly in Richard's direction, before then making to leave. However, a shout-out from one of the royalists obviously irked him, so he came back, apparently with his dagger drawn or his hand on um, his weapon. That was the excuse. Indeed, so then the mayor of London stabs him, another right come, a knight comes in, runs him through. Fatally wounded but not dead, tries to get back to the rebels, sort of running back on his horse, shouting at them, saying, get revenge, they, look what they've done, but isn't able to get close enough so they can hear him. He then falls off, at which point the royal troops quickly come in and take him away. And everyone's very confused, so the rebels don't know what's going on, most of the royal troops don't know what's going on, it's all very tense. So the rebels start to prepare their bows, they're going to start firing, battles are bre- about to break out, at which point Richard... Little 14-year-old Richard kicks his horse forward, goes towards the rebels and addresses them. He says, Sirs, will you kill your king? I am your king. I your captain and leader. Follow me into the fields. And then, like sheep, they follow him, trotting off, and he leads them off into uh, St John's Fields nearby. Takes them away from the incident. incident, So he managed to call it all off. Called it all off, Mm. just when it was about to kick off. Wat Tyler is then taken away to the hospital where the mayor found him, so he drags him back out to Smithfield, um, executes him, and then... That's a rubbish hospital. Is it? <laughs> well, they, well, they execute people. Well, he took him out, back to the... Oh, out field. of the hospital. I yeah. he took him to hospital to execute him. No, it wasn't the doctor's diagnosis. <laughs> His man needs death. Yeah. <laughs> he takes him out of the hospital, back right. to Smithfield in the field, presumably a more appropriate location to yeah. uh, behead him, and then... Runs off, catches up with Richard and the rebels, displays the head. Richard says, oh, very well done. And the rebels, lacking their charismatic leader, disperse somewhat down Drodden. Mm. And they're led back out of London. And it's all uh, it's all over. Way. So then the rebels are dispersed. The last stronghold is sort of defeated in a small skirmish at Billericay. The Essex lot keep on going. The leaders get captured and executed, as well as many, many others. Richard's authority has been enhanced by his display of bravery, but also his sense of divine right to rule, and the mm. king as his absolute force of power is enhanced quite significantly. So it's quite a big moment yeah. in his kingship. 
But and do the um, do the reforms go through? Not really. I think some of the economic ones later have to be put in place because of economic circumstances. But at the time, they don't do anything. Uh, he was right, you see. Ultimately, they issue a pardon, but only after quite a lot of people have been murdered. Mm. Anyway, we'll come to that in subjectivity. He then has, um, still, years of his minority, and it's one of conflict with the nobles. He irks them by uh, repeating the tricks of Edward II, namely by promoting his lowly favourites oh, above their again. station. So there's Michael de la Pole and uh, Robert de Vere, who get sort of up to sort of Chancellor and mm. other quite important positions, given land, etc., Nobles hate this. They're also upset at the fact that Richard doesn't display any enthusiasm for war with France or Scotland, which they see as something he should be doing. Richard tries to quell um, this dissatisfaction by leading a campaign to Scotland in 1385, but forced to abandon it without even being able to fight a battle. It all goes a bit farcically wrong. And then John of Gaunt, one of his key supporters, uh, goes off in 1386 to pursue his claim to the Castilian throne. Right. Because he's married the daughter. So he's... One of his big oh, powerful so men is gone. Power eroding. 1386, Michael de la Pole as Chancellor requests a large taxation for the defence of the realm because they were scared about French invasion. But the Lords make a stand at this point and they refuse to grant anything until Pole is removed as Chancellor. Hang on, they were worried about French invasion? Yeah. This is because Edward III's um, advances had all retreated back to that sliver. Yeah. So there's a very real possibility France that it was going to go the other way. Yeah. It all come right back onto England's doorstep. So they're refusing to give anything until Pole is removed as Chancellor. It's called the Wonderful Parliament, where Parliament says, no, we're not having any of this anymore. They threaten Richard with dis- de- uh, deposition, so he is forced to give way, and a commission set up to review the royal finances for a year. They can threaten him with, with deposition? They threaten him, they do. Wow. Because so he's, these, he's still these, very young at this point. These things set up by... These earlier ideas set up by de Montfort have really started to take hold. Very much so, yeah. Parliament showing itself again to be the dominant force. If yeah. Parliament says no, the king can't so stop it. bound to come to blows if you've got Richard II feeling this enhanced sense of yeah. royal or divine royalty. Mm. And he doesn't um, let that lie. So he starts preparing for civil war. So he goes around the country mustering support in terms of retainers mm-hmm. and men to fight. Installs Robert de Vera's Justice of Cheshire, which he sort of sets up as his power base. So then the lords, the major lords, decide that they're going to combine now to present a united front against him. So we have the lords appellant. Also appellant? Well, as we'll see. (laughs) There are three of them initially. Uh, The Duke of Gloucester, which is his uncle, uh, Earl of Arundel and the Earl of Warwick, and then later joined by two others, Henry Bolingbroke, who is the son of John of Gaunt, and um, Thomas de Mowbray, who's the Duke of Norfolk. So we've got these five big earls. And what happens is they meet Richard in London and bring an appeal of treason against his favourites. That's where the appellant comes from. It's sort of a legal appeal. Oh, right. And they're, I mean, those names are um, are famous. There's lots of Bolingbrokes and lots of Gaunts throughout history, so they really are big, big nobles. Yeah, these are the big. And so they're getting it not rather than arresting the king exactly, they just go for his. His ministers. Yes, they too understand the role of king still. They still respect it. Absolutely. However, Richard stalls the negotiations to buy some more time. And then we have a little bit of a a battle. So 19th of December 1387 at Radcot Bridge. um, It's bridge over the Thames. De Vere brings troops from Cheshire, tries to storm this crossing, but it's guarded by Henry Bolingbroke. And he's got troops which he surrounds De Vere's army. De Vere escapes, goes off into exile, but the army is defeated... And the Lord's Appellant are victorious. 
That's it. The final, that, that's they have won. So in 1388, the merciless Parliament, as it became known, those who didn't escape and were Richard's supporters were condemned and sentenced to death as traitors, i.e. hung, drawn and quartered. Traitors against the Crown for fighting for the Crown? Yes. It's ambiguous. The <laughs> most controversial one was Sir Simon Burley, who had been Richard's tutor and had arranged the marriage to his wife, Anne of Bohemia. Gloucester, the Duke of Gloucester and then the Duke of York, who are brothers, two of Edmund, Edward, uh, Richard's uncles, publicly disagreed about it. Anne, his wife, gets on her knees, begs for leniency for him, but Gloucester is absolutely determined and he's still executed. Only um, a beheading, not the full yeah. horrible death, but nevertheless, no mercy. Well, yeah. So, at this point, Lord's Appellant absolutely in control. Richard's nothing more than a puppet king, really. However, 1389, things turn around again. The Lord's Appellant, now in control, pursue an aggressive foreign policy, but they fail to achieve anything in France. North of England still suffering raids from Scotland. So the Commons and the Parliament lose, lose their faith in them. They lose that support, which yeah. they required. Mm. John of Gaunt comes back to England in 1389, makes his peace with Richard, so they've got that sort of key alliance again. If Gaunt is the most powerful. Did noble. he um, succeed in Castile? He did not. Oh, That's why I came back. Okay, okay try his luck. <laughs> and Richard plays everything very well. He acts with careful moderation, very reasonable in council and parliament, plays his opponents off against each other, and then when he turns 21, as he is due to do, he claims full majority status. And he's played it so well, it's gone so wrong for the Lord's Appellant, that everyone just accepts it. Because there's been so much infighting that they'd rather have one fella, because yeah. all his favourites are gone now anyway. Mm. They kind of, they should have just, sort of, yeah. Anyway, so Richard is now in, back in charge again. Mm. Well, Quite well easily, really. Yeah. And they have pretty much seven years of pretty successful, harmonious government. So the Lord's Appellant, he doesn't take any action... Um, against any of them. Yeah, it's clever. Um, the appellants cease to function as a opposition anymore. They're not really together. Richard's more even-handed in how he distributes patronage. He agrees no grants to people with financial implications unless there's parliamentary consent. And takes a bit more of an interest in law and order, appoints new sheriffs to get rid of some of the old corrupts one, relaxes some of the taxes. And he builds up his sort of royal court to impress his subjects and to look good. So he's actually suddenly in quite a strong position. It's all working quite well. Right. 1394 to 95, he goes off to Ireland, takes about 8,000 troops to restore order an increasingly rebellious um, part of the kingdom. And it's very successful. He gets the submission of all the major Irish chieftains, restoration of royal authority. They all submit to him. And his uh, military reputation gets a bit of an enhancement as well. So he comes back. It's all going well. Feeling pretty pleased. It's all going pretty, pretty good. With France, he pursues a very different policy. After all the aggression of the Lord's Appellants has failed, he says... We're not going to fight them anymore. He wants to pursue a policy of peace. His logic being that then he'll be able to lower the taxes and he'll provide better government to his subjects because they're not having to fund yeah. war yeah. anymore. 1396 successfully negotiates a uh, 28-year truce with France uh, in return for which he marries the king's seven-year-old daughter, Isabella of Valois, because yeah, his, really. his wife had died a couple of years earlier. So obviously not um, nothing going on. Yeah there as such but anyway it's the truce with France yeah. it's another big achievement 28 years is a weird number it is but you know it's got to be something <laughs> so it's all going very well all very lovely but 1397 everything changes pretty much without warning he arrests the three senior Lords Appellants that's Gloucester Arundel and Warwick he obviously now feels that he's in a strong enough position to get vengeance for them 
killing off all his friends oh. and favourites before. It's talk of that they were plotting against him, probably he just decided Yeah. now. So Gloucester, his uncle, is murdered while in prison, probably to avoid the controversy of having a public execution because he is obviously of royal blood mm. as the son of Edward III. Arundel is put on trial, whilst on trial, has a massive argument with Richard and, not too surprisingly, is executed, formally. Right. Uh, whereas Warwick confesses his guilt, pleads for clemency and is exiled for life to the Isle of Man. So Warwick lives, but yeah. sent away. And then he alters the parliamentary record so he can condemn all the enemies as traitors of the crown. So he's very much sort of saying, now, yes, this is how it's all been. They've been traitors all along, and I've managed to get rid of them. Well, that's a bit of a shame. I thought he was doing rather well. This is going to be his downfall, I feel. He, con- he continues in his tyranny, so um, he pursues the supporters of these lords, forces them to purchase pardons at a very high price, so this was called la plaisance. So it's a fine where his goodwill is purchased to secure their safety. Spanley 1398, he raised over £20,000 across 17 counties just by saying, you better pay for me to like you or else. Yeah, yeah. well, I like you do. a lot. That's a lot of money. <laughs> yes. Um, so, but they're still speaking French then? Um, well, no, it's just, it's just sort of called that. Okay. I don't know why it's called that. Anyway, he also forbids sending letters abroad because obviously you've got people in exile and yeah. stuff, has any incoming foreign mail to magnates intercepted to make sure nothing treasonous is going on, recruits retainers in the localities to boost his military dominance, that's mm. troops yeah. he's bringing in, and he becomes increasingly detached at court. His sense of divine majesty is really getting to new levels. Right. So he's really becoming a bit of a power-crazed tyrant. Now, the two younger and more junior appellants, which is Bolingbroke and Mowbray, yeah. hadn't suffered any ill effects. They were still okay. But they were getting a bit worried. Mowbray confessed his fear to Bolingbroke that they might be his next targets for people to bring down. Bolingbroke mentions this to his dad, John of Gaunt, and he advises him to go and tell the king, because it's sort of treasonous, in effect, that it's speculating. Well, it, so hang on, whose side was he on initially? They were initially, they were initially the more... Uh, junior and more um, conservative right. of the Lord's Appellant. So they weren't quite as radically anti-Richard. And now they're worried the that ones. someone else is planning something. Yeah. Right, okay. So Bolingbroke decides to report it to the King so there's no sense that it will seem like the two are scheming together. Yeah. Mowbray, very upset, denies the subsequent accusation of treason. Because there were no witnesses to their conversation, they decide the only way they can determine which is the honourable man and who's telling mm. the truth is to have trial by combat I knew that it's just a <laughs> Harry Hill answer to any yeah. justice system have a fight yeah so this is going to be the big sort of moment of this of the age in terms of chivalry we've got a big crowd everybody out to see it the two on lances horses ready to that doesn't prove anything take each other it's out more whoever lives yeah, yeah. <laughs> extensive preparations made big crowd all very excited they're quite big supporters of Bolingbroke apparently he's got the sort of the popular touch but just as they're starting to charge Richards goes nope Stop! Very dramatically intervenes. He has a little think and decides to exile Mowbray for life and Bolingbroke for ten years. So he chucks both of them out. Even though one reported it? There's no way to prove it. Yeah, so he just gets rid of both of them. Do you reckon he he planned that all so he could have looked really... Looked dramatic and also, of course, it means he gets to take the spoils from their lands, which obviously are left vacant while they're in exile. Brilliant. So He's very clever. So at this point, you know, he's, he's got rid of all the five of them. Mm. all the success is all going really well he thinks yeah I am God on earth pretty much 
1399, John of Gaunt dies of natural causes. Right. Um, had always been a stalwart supporter. Didn't even object when his son Bolingbroke gets sent into exile. Really? Yeah. This is quite an opportunity where Richard could have brought Bolingbroke back, succeeds to his father's um, yeah. duchy of Lancaster, and then gets his loyalty back. What he does instead is extends his tenure exile to life and seizes his Lancastrian inheritance, so he just takes all to him. It's a big error because all the other nobles are alarmed by this because they think, basically, at the king's whim, no one is guaranteed their inheritance. He can just steal anything he likes. They don't have any ownership of their land if the Mm. king will just willy-nilly steal stuff. So he loses a lot of support. However, 1399, he goes off back to Ireland because trouble's broken out there again. Thinking that he's fine, he leaves his last surviving uncle Edmund of York in charge and Bolingbroke is exiled in France so he thought well France aren't going to let him back because we've got the peace treaty they're not going to break that however in June Louis Duke of Orleans takes control in France from the insane Charles VI and he doesn't have any interest in the peace treaty so he lets Bolingbroke back into England Um, I quite want to hear why he's insane Um, I haven't got too much on the phone. <laughs> okay. he's, he's just a bit mad. Does he get uh, elephants drunk like the other fella? So that sounds fun. Well, maybe. I suspect he probably <laughs> Let's pretend he did. Yeah. So Bolingbroke comes back to England 4th of July with only about 100 men. So he lands at uh, Ravenspur on the Humber. Moves to Pontefract to muster the Lancastrian troops because he is now, in effect, Duke of Lancaster. And he's then joined at Doncaster by um, a Northumberland Earl, Henry Percy. I think it's known in Shakespeare as Harry Hotspur. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And he brings about 30,000 men. So suddenly, Henry is building, Bolingbroke is building an army. 20th of July reaches Warwick and has about 100,000 men. That's huge. So many, he actually has to send them home because he can't maintain an army of that size. So everyone wants King out. Everyone wants Richard out. 27th of July, he meets with York. Duke of York is the one who's meant to be in charge of the kingdom and they agree they're not going to have a fight. So then Richard... Here's all about this. Pops back, gets to Milford Haven, tries to ride out to Chester to do something about it. Men desert him all over the place. Apparently even a greyhound was said to have defected. <laughs> and uh, he's arrested. He's just on his own and he's arrested. Not completely on yeah, his own. This he's... rambling man on no. his own. But yeah, his army isn't able to put up a fight. So there's no battle. Like with Edward II, it's just, boop, suddenly he's gone. Bang. So, Bolingbroke has got him captured. However, much less willing than Edward II to stand aside. Because he doesn't have any children at this point. There's no legitimate Mm. heir as such to pass it on to. And there's no precedent in England for a king just being deposed. They really need him to abdicate. Apparently clings on for about seven weeks until he eventually concedes to give up the throne. And just sort of reflects quite sadly on how English kings have suffered at the hands of their subjects over the years. All a bit sombre. And, uh, yeah, and then Richard's acceptance of his abdication is read out in Parliament. He's not allowed to go and do it himself. It's all a little hush-hush, because mm. obviously if he was in Parliament, he might try and swing things back. And uh, Bolingbroke successfully makes his case for saying that he should be the king, because John of Gaunt was one of Edward III's children, thus he is a grandson of Edward III, and he succeeds. So Henry Bolingbroke becomes Henry IV. So it's still of the same family? Still of the same family. So they were cousins. Bolingbroke and Richard were cousins. Finally. So, 1399, Henry IV is now king, and Richard is not. And and how long is he alive before? Well, initially, Henry's lenient, lets him live, and he's reduced to being just Sir Richard of Bordeaux. 
However, as with Edward II, there's a plot to restore him, which is easily defeated, but again, Henry sees that he's never going to be secure mm, if Richard indeed. is alive. So 1400, Richard is secretly murdered at Pontefract Castle. Initially thought to have been done with an axe, but apparently skeleton revealed there weren't actually any wounds, so he's probably starved to death. Crikey. Mm. That is, firstly, that's a horrible death, mm. if he is starved. Um, and what a strange king to model yourself on. Very strange. But he even tried to have him canonised at one point. Really? Yeah. Weird. Um, that's that's really unspectacular end. Especially Very. if he's got that new title, Richard of Bordeaux, and he's <laughs> going to one of these swanky medieval parties where there's pigs <laughs> with apples in their mouths, and he's introduced as Henry of Bordeaux. Um, and he's with the Richard the Second, like must have been awkward. I don't think he got to go to many parties. He wasn't, in he wasn't on the social scene. <laughs> no. Outcast. Anyway, yes. Yeah, so Richard the Second is not king, and he is now dead. Oh, poor chap. Yep, and he was only thirty-three. So it's all fallen apart. Moments of genius. But yeah. So anyway, so that's the end of his reign. We must now review it. Okay, let's do it. Battleliness. There's a lot of bad mm, here. Yeah, obviously. Um, peasants revolt he, they aren't able to raise an army to defeat the peasants London gets prey to anarchic violence all that he can do is watch quite nervously from the Tower of London France dominates in terms of the Hundred Years War they never make uh, any headway 1385 they were actually preparing an armada to invade England so it wasn't just idle fears France what did actually have a massive fleet 1385 yeah preparing to right. invade because this is when England were in, uh, the troops were in Scotland mm. so the south was largely undefended the only reason it didn't happen was because there was an uprising in Ghent against oh, right, the French, yeah. which they had to deal with. They had to divert, so they never invaded. But they're very close to a French invasion. Yeah, that's like 1939. Indeed. Scottish campaign 1385 was all a bit of a farce. It was They planned to provoke the Scots to come out into open battle, whereby they could then crush them because they waited numbers. But the Scots had seen this before. Mm. So what they did was strip the countryside of all the food, fled to the hills, and then the English troops come along... No food to eat, no enemy to fight, nothing to do. Go Go back home again. Yeah, this is rubbish. Very (laughs) rubbish. And then, of course, against the nobles, it all fails. So the Lords Appellant at Radcot defeat De Vere in battle quite easily, and Richard forced to take orders from Parliament. And then Bolingbroke invades. Richard thought he was all-powerful, but suddenly Bolingbroke masses a huge army, and Richard just very meekly has to surrender. It's not not good. I don't know how you're going to swing this. Not very good. However... There is some good stuff, mm. of some degree. Mm. <laughs> the Peasants' Revolt, although there isn't an army to put together, Richard does show a lot of bravery when he went forth at that moment when battle was about to break out, put himself right in the firing line, all on his own on the horse, at only 14, and takes control of the situation. Yeah, it's quite a brave... It's, yeah, that's pretty good. of bravery. And Ireland, he did have that successful campaign in Ireland... He was the first king to visit since John in 1210. Oh, yeah, when he pulling all the beards. <laughs> That's brilliant. And he's the last English king to go until the 1690s, William of Orange. Really? Yes. And Ireland had been neglected by the Plantagenets, and apparently since 1315, when Edward Bruce, the brother of Robert the Bruce, had led an invasion, the Gaelic sort of sense of identity had been reignited, so the Irish chieftains were trying to take all their land back from the sort of. Anglo-Irish Robert the Bruce, Scottish Robert the Bruce. Yeah, so he launched an invasion. His brother launched an invasion. So they were trying to get the sort of Scotland, Wales, Ireland, the Gaelic they were trying to unite. countries to unite. It wasn't successful, but it did help foster. He was so he wasn't trying to. Sorry, rebellion. This is the wrong king. Um, oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Hmm. 
Okay, but I mean that's a bit of a sideline, really, isn't it? Well, he went over with eight thousand troops, so it was quite a big thing, and he got mm. submission from all the major chieftains. So he did put it down. So you know, he did take definitive okay. action and was successful. Yeah, but that's it. But that's it. Um, I don't think I'm not going to count as bad the um, the fact that he couldn't muster troops for the Peasants' Revolt because I think he inherited that situation with troops in Wales. Scotland and France. And he was only 14, so he wasn't yeah. really in command of the troops anyway. And it's only really good things out of that with his speech. So that's some points, though he's not actually fighting. But, I mean, you know, war is a form of diplomacy. He's not fighting and managing yeah. to, um, to put that to bed. And, of course, he has the diplomacy with France, which in the later years helps to yeah. keep them at bay. Um, and when he's... When he's losing against the nobles, it really is just him. There's a few, yes. but <laughs> not even a greyhound. Not even a greyhound to um, run around them. Oh, I th- it's pretty good. There's just not. It's when it's good, it's good. But there's just not really a lot of it. No, I mean he doesn't win any battles really or no. anything like that. Four. Yeah, I think I'll give him a a three. Like mm. it's not really a great military success there. No. So seven for Battleinus. Scandal. Bit more here, yeah. Um, his favourites, of course, caused a lot of scandal. First one, Michael de la Pole, came from a merchant family, but in 1383 is made Chancellor, and mm. then Earl of Suffolk in 1385. So this really that's upsets like um, uh, Ed, um, what's his name, Beckett. He came up the ranks like that, didn't he? He did, but yeah. he was a bit more accepted, much more accepted, mm. much more capable. I suspect. Yeah, yeah. And it was the same thing where, like with Edward II, where he's just spending all his time at court with his favourites mm. and not listening to anybody else. The main one, however, is Robert de Vere. He's his favourite favourite. Mm. He comes from a quite a lowly gentry family, but got elevated to the new title of Duke of Ireland in 1386 without any parliamentary consent and given lots of land and grants, including the town and castle of Colchester. Wow, that is a big castle too. Big castle indeed. And he was a scandalous figure, because apparently he was married to one of the king's cousins, which is pretty high in itself, again like Gadsden, got yeah. a royal marriage. But he was having an affair with one of her ladies-in-waiting, and he actually tried to repudiate his wife in favour of the mistress, which right. Richard was quite happy to sanction. But the laws thought this is absolute outrage for the royal family and the nobility to be dealt with in such a shocking way. And that was, and again, one of the things that really upset them. Yeah. And Arundel, the Earl of Arundel, was one of the Lord's appellant, apparently complained that the court group were monopolising the king's ear and the flow of bounty from the royal treasure. They were effeminate, preferring love to war, and were indifferent to the prosecution of the struggle against France and Scotland. Hippies. Exactly. <laughs> Damn hippies. Indeed, the sexuality of Richard was questioned openly at the time as well, again, like Edward II. Yeah, well, maybe he's modelling himself to the A bit extreme, too much. <laughs> do they just cast these aspersions whenever someone doesn't like war very much? To a certain extent, that's the case, yes. So sodomy does tend to be a charge that gets brought against any king that they're not very happy about. Apart from Rufus II, who loved a bit of war. <laughs> yeah, he was all about that. Um, yeah, so he was accused of it with Robert de Vere, and as we said, he did identify with Edward II, who had a similar problem, if you will. Um, <laughs> Robert de Vere, of course, went into exile um, mm. after being defeated. Apparently died of his wounds in 1392 after being um, injured by a wild boar. Oh, cool. Presumably while hunting. Yeah. And uh, 1395, Richard had his embalmed body brought back to England for burial, and apparently opened the coffin 
sort of touch his hand and look at his face one last time before burying him. Oh, so there nice. was this sense of actually a very strong yeah. affection between them. And he also has the fact that he doesn't have any children, and it is a bit of a taboo subject. Yeah, because he was 33. Although he was marrying seven-year-olds. In, but only three years before his reign ends. Right. So, as you said, he'd acted as a minor. He'd cultivated that youthful, infantile mm. appearance. Um, no children with his first wife. His second wife was so young that sexual relations were impossible. Mm. Question marks about his relationship with Gavis, uh, not Gaveston, with uh, Richard de Vere. So it's it's all a little bit yeah, bit scandalous and peculiar. Yeah. To make him less scandalous, it was suggested that he was again enamoured with the cult of Edward the Confessor, who they believed had taken a vow of chastity. So maybe right, he yeah. also had this, but. It's easier to believe this weird, <laughs> scandalous yeah, yeah. explanation. So there's, there's a bit of st- stuff there for scandal. Not um, sort of front page necessarily completely well, changes I mean, everything scandal that we've had from others. But I know we're going to get into this in subjectivity, mm. but the scandalous nature of his demise. Well, but you can't really give him points for... Someone else. Someone uh, else yeah, or something. Okay. If anything, you'd give that to Henry the Fourth next time. Good point. Mm. Um, so, okay, let's quick recap. We've got sexuality, mm. potentially. Um, his favourites, De Vere. And favourites doing naughty things. Favourites doing naughty things. And what was the one other... Was there any other one? Uh, well, there's sort of weirdness around why he doesn't have any children. No, yeah, it was pretty... Uh, what do we give... Oh, I can't give it to John because John had so much. Edward the Second had so much more. Oh yeah. Um, I'm not. You know, I'm not thinking it's that much. I think I'm going to give it a five to Mary. I was going five. Yeah, because yeah, it's just it's pretty stock stuff. Yeah, stock scandal. It? Yeah, <laughs> you'd expect yeah. this. Yeah. Want, hang on, I'm going to change mine. I'm going four. Oh. Because nice. five, is pretty mm. stock scandal. A scandal, but you also want some sex with nuns. Yeah. <laughs> Much like his um, The legacy of Edgar the Peaceable. <laughs> yeah. You know, a bit, 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 bit more murder, mm. maybe. So that's only nine uh, for Scandal, which usually is the uh, the good category for the bad kings, but he's not done too well there. He was just all round bad. <laughs> well, yeah. let's see his next yeah. one. Subjectivity. Again, obviously, we have quite a number of points against mm. for subjectivity. Uh, the poll tax, uh, we had the unfair uh, tax in the Peasants' Revolt. The enforcement of restrictive laws, which obviously incites the Peasants' Revolt, which in itself is pretty bad, where we have anarchy, London prey to destruction and ministers being brutally murdered. Um, and then retribution. for So once he dispersed them in 1381, didn't have that general pardon. Instead, the chroniclers reveal that from sort of July to November, it was a very dark and bloody period. There was national paranoia. We have neighbours turning on each other, reporting people as suspicious whereby only needed a man of sort of local repute to say yes I think this person is a bit suspicious they might be a peasant rebellion and then they get executed Crikey. so it's not a very nice time something in the region of either 1500 to 7000 subjects died or well, were killed in this period it's like McCarthyism but worse or... well, yeah, and so the Westminster Chronicle recorded the populace shuddered at the spectacle of so many gibbeted bodies exposed to the light of day Tiny bodies on display, yeah. having been executed, and it's very unpleasant. And then um, again, we have that sort of divine majesty, a sense of I am the voice of God, the absolute power on earth. So, at Billericay, Richard addressed the rebels, 
and uh, far from his sort of rather more amenable terms at Smithfield, where he got them on side, at Billericay he says, You wretches, detestable on land and sea, you who seek equality with lords are unworthy to live. Give this message to your colleagues. Rustics you were, and rustics you are still. You will remain in bondage, not as before, but incomparably harsher. For as long as we live, we being I, we will strive to suppress you, and your misery will be an example in the eyes of posterity. However, we will spare your lives if you remain faithful and loyal. Choose which now course you want to follow. So they didn't get their terms. Didn't get their terms. <laughs> He's a little less open to negotiation. Yeah. You might say acceptable, they've rebelled against him. He's the king. But it's all not very pleasant. No. No, it's not good. I thought, um, yeah, I thought that's that's going to be pretty scandalous, pretty bad, very bad for subjectivity. Yeah. Also, of course, we have all the tensions with the nobles, the favourites, the tyranny, stealing people's lands, demanding the fines yeah. to get the pardon, and, of course, the rebellion. So anyone who sacks these nobles so much that you have rebellions and ultimately deposition, that's clearly not a country that's no, not safe and well-ordered. And, of course, the succession issue, there are no children um, that he leaves, and the deposition starts to lay the grounds for the Wars of the Roses. Yeah, it shows that you can... It's um, shaken the foundation of this divine right, and you can replace a king. Mm. Mm. So the direct line has been broken, and now the sense of kings being removable is being put in place. So, again, that's not a very good legacy to leave behind. And also his personality is something which maybe is partly to blame for some of this. So, um, as we said, he had that belief in absolute royal power and the divinity of the monarchy, so that was partly his obsession with his image and the portraits and the paintings, because mm. he wanted to display it powerfully to everybody. He instigated new forms of address for the king, such as your highness and your majesty. Oh, really? Something he was insisting on. And apparently in later years, at formal crown wearings, he was seat in all his regalia, wearing his crown, on his throne, in the big halls, and he'd just sort of be there all day, silently, sort of back straight, looking around. And if he ever cast his gaze and his eyes at anybody, presumably like I can imagine sort of an owl just sort of <laughs> just head, turning. If he looked at them, they then had to bow to him. So if he just decided to look at somebody, they then had to bow, submit themselves. You could play a brilliant game with that, couldn't you? Just, <laughs> think, just looking away, look back. Oh, look, look. <laughs> You'd never, you'd never be let them leave the room. So some historians have questioned his actual sanity. So as Bishop Stubbs in the 19th century said that his mind was losing its balance altogether, and uh, Anthony Steele in 1941 thought that he was schizophrenic. Mm. That's been questioned now, but uh, Nigel Saul, who's written one of the main biographies of him, suggests that he was uh, a narcissist. Almost certainly, yeah. So this is where he sort of experiences the world only through himself and his own person, so anybody or anything else doesn't really make sense or have any reality to him and mm. doesn't really empathise with it so he's got obsession with his self image angry if he sees that it's being threatened storing up grudges like we see with that vengeance from 1388 when mm. 1397 is when he actually takes action so not a great personality for being no. king in a way it's the worst personality a king could have because they really actually believe all of this stuff they yeah. can go a bit mad yeah, yeah. yeah so. however on the other hand, there's some good stuff. Mm. Well, you don't believe me, but... In Ireland, as well as restoring royal authority, he actually has quite a forward-thinking vision of how he wants to govern Ireland. So he says that there are three types of Irishmen. <laughs> this gets better. <laughs> the wild Irish, i.e. the natives who rebel, uh, the rebel Irish, who are potentially 
Anglo-Irish, and the obedient English, i.e. the lords and the people that have been sent there to colonise. He believes that rebellion in Ireland is arising from poor government, so the rebel Irish will only ally with the wilder elements unless they show, are shown mercy and good government in Ireland. So you need to control, if you've already got control of the top bit, control the middle bit and the bottom bit will be fine. Yeah, but it's recognition not that they're rebelling because they're evil people, but because we've given them bad government, mm-hmm. we need to govern okay. better. So he's proposing, proposing a new government where Ireland is one single lordship and all the inhabitants are his liege subjects, i.e. regardless of race. So he's not distinguishing between English, Anglo-Irish, Native Irish. They're all Irish and they're all subject to him. Mm. Which seems obviously very top-down and dictatorial, yeah, but, but actually it's quite progressive yeah. in the way that he's trying to bring everybody in Ireland on side. Yeah. Doesn't really work, so we can't get too many points for it, but he's, he's thinking quite progressively. Yeah. As well as that, that's not all I've got to pin on him. <laughs> France, he... Uh, um, goes for peace and gets oh, that peace true. treaty yeah, yeah. trying to do that rather than war and cost yeah. so he can bring down taxes and he, there was opposition from the nobles the lords who really wanted the war but he says no we're having peace and it's that's quite a good thing to pursue yeah and he wanted to put that money back into other things yeah right, okay. so that's a good thing 1389 to 96 we had seven years of good rule he was in good accordance with the nobles, which is impressive after what had happened yeah. in the years previously, taking interest in justice. Obviously, in 1397, he then goes and kills them all and goes a bit mad, uh, but yeah. there's seven years, so it's all quite nice. And he has a very, very cultured court. Yes. Now, this is what I was going to say, because it, it must... Um, it's reflected in that portrait, didn't yeah. it? So there's lots of stuff. So in terms of clothing, the codpiece emerges as a, uh, a popular fashion We've item. We've got him to thank for that. He's the original oh, one. Brilliant. He doesn't take it to the same extent and size as Henry VIII, yeah. but nevertheless. Um, also, they have the sort of embroidered doublets with padded shoulders. These are the sort of oh, yeah, fancy-looking yeah, yeah. things. Yeah. Again, which Tudor's probably more famous for, but yeah. embedded with jewels and stuff. And also they've got a hoopaland. So this is a type of cloak... But rather than it just being a plain cloak they wear, it's this really long coloured robe with high neck and embedded with lots of jewels. It's all very nice, very right. cultured. And it's all designed to display the male physique to perfection. Right. So they're taking an interest in how they look. Cuisine, he's very into his food. Which probably other kings were, we've got more for him. So um, he constructed a spicery and two sorceries at Eltham, Rebuild Palace. And there's a book called The Form of Curry, which is his recipe book, which features 196. Really? We've got his recipe book? Recipes, not recipes penned by... No, Richard but they're himself, ones that he... That he used to like. Yeah, so the court food, heavily spiced uh, with ginger, cloves, cardamoms, apparently quite similar to sort of modern Arabic yeah. food, probably. So they like the spices, partly for the taste, also because it's a luxury item. And it's, yeah, power, isn't it? Yeah. Lots and lots of flavour. Architecture, he um, has a big reconstruction of the Great Hall at uh, Westminster. Right. And he builds his 15 statues of his sort of predecessors as kings, I think from William or maybe from Edward Confessor onwards up to him. So these mm. are life-size statues all oh, around right. the hall. It's all very impressive. And he builds um, some lovely palaces. There's one at Eltham, one at Sheen, neither of which still stand today, but lots of big building works. Yeah. And uh, hygiene is a big thing for Richard. Not something that kings have maybe always pinned all their <laughs> Rex Factor <laughs> glories on, but Richard goes <laughs> We've got to get something. He installs bathhouses at Eltham and Sheen, where apparently there were 2,000 coloured tiles on the floors and private lavatories. That's everybody. quite a, a sort of Middle Eastern Arabic influence as well. Yeah. He's, but he's never went. 
Never went, but obviously the culture's come over from yeah. all the Crusades and whatnot. And um, under his insistence, people ate with spoons rather than their fingers. It's all mm. a bit more civilised. And, perhaps best of all, he invented the handkerchief. No. I know this sounds a little bit like Dr. Evil in Austin oh, Powers. Yeah, question mark. He says that his father invented the question mark. But he really did. At the time, they were obviously they were the, sort of the white cloths that people have. But he's the first one to actually use it as something you know, to wipe his nose or to have the hand. So before they just used their clothes? Or, or just their fingers, fingers and rubbed along. Yes, he actually has a pocket handkerchief. And he's the man who started it all off. The handkerchief. Thank you to Richard II. Yeah, will you get a point for that? (laughs) And literature, of course, is a crucial period in the development of English literature. This is the point at which Chaucer really comes into his own, so where he writes the Canterbury Tales and all his um, most famous works. This is when English literature is, again, great. Is that because he... um, Did he request it? He sanctioned it or what? Well, it's quite tricky to establish the link between Richard and all of this happening. Mm. Maybe because we don't have the evidence in terms of the patronage, but all these people are at court. Um, Chaucer is actually employed as a sort of clerical officer in various degrees, so we know a bit more about Chaucer. So we can't say definitively that Richard II said, Chaucer, you're doing good work, here's some money, do some more. We can't say that, but he he was probably quite happy with it because of all the other stuff that's going on. He likes having a cultured court. He wants to be seen as a sage, a wise king. You know, this is pretty good. So he probably did um, have this. And also his wife, first wife, Anne of Bohemia, came over to England with English Gospels, i.e. Gospels translated into English, which was not something which was otherwise done at the time. In fact, it was considered quite... um, Almost heretical, wasn't it? Heretical in many ways. It was arguably a sort of translational aid for her. Because it was James I that did the first English one, wasn't it? Uh, no, it wasn't the first one. The first one was Cranmer and Edward VI. But right. John Wycliffe, who was another Lollard, 1383, tried to do a translation, English translation of the Bible. Again, he was dismissed as a heretic. All the copies were burnt and all sorts of things. But he referenced the fact that the Queen of England had an English copy. So right. again, we see sort of the starts of English yeah. now, Yeah. even for the Gospel becoming literature. So, culturally... It's uh, quite proper Renaissance stuff, so he's got actually quite a lot of good stuff in subjectivity, as well as all the horrific stuff. Well, and the horrific stuff was the... We'd got quite a lot of things, so we'd got the Peasants' Revolt, the tax, the violence, the retribution, the rebellions, the the succession issue, the fact that he might have been a bit mad. You know, I think this is good, though. Mm. Because I think, if we're doing doing subjectivity, Mm. I'm looking at this from the average chap's point of view. Yep. Um, apart from the Peasants' Revolt, which is, okay, one of the biggest things <laughs> in the medieval period. For the average chap. Yeah, for the average chap. <laughs> Towards the end of his life, it seemed to be that his all the um, grief was between him and the nobles. Mm. And everything else was going along quite nicely. He was making peace with France. So you think if he hadn't been... If he hadn't messed up with Bolingbroke and exiling him for life and taking all of his land... It might have been a very, very different part. Very yeah. different, yeah. And... Although you'd still have the Peasants' Revolt being a big issue, I think it would have been, um, wouldn't quite have been under the magnifying glass quite so mm. much. Um, I'm going to go, if I, I can't go higher than five with the Peasants' Revolt, that's just <laughs> ridiculous. I might go 4.5, because hmm. I think it's good. I'm, I'm 
Yeah, I, I agree with that, actually. I'll do four and a half as well. I wanted to give him a five, but I thought it's got to come down. It can't really just be in the middle and say, yeah, it's pretty... Yeah, because the Peasants Revolt peasant is pretty huge. bad for yeah. ordinary people. If you're a subject, this is one of the This is you the saying, I want really. these things, and he, he just stabs the leader. And then everybody else. Yeah. Mm. And calls them, what is it called? Rustics. <laughs> oh yeah, rustics you are and forever shall be. So that's a nine for subjectivity. Mm. Could have been so much more if he hadn't murdered all those peasants. Yeah. Longevity. So he rules from 1377 to 1399. So despite everything, it's 22 years. Yeah, and, I mean, that's so that's a reasonable score, but there's, we haven't yet re-mentioned the fact how wily he was. Like, there was periods of really clever genius when he was playing his enemies off against each other, and all of a sudden, we're back to this situation where he's king again, mm. and everyone's okay with it. Yeah. And it's just because he didn't let Bolenbroke back that it's rubbish. If anything, maybe he just got too successful, and it all went to his head. It went to his head, exactly. Yeah. And the, So the longevity thing, I think he could have been like... Um, uh, like Ed, well, no, who was it? Edward the Second. He managed to carry on. Oh, John was there for ages. No, I can't. Henry the Third. Yeah, he was, was there with, for quite a long time. Just by being a bit wily and just just being hanging a on somehow. Yeah, hmm. I think he would have been one of those, but he wasn't. But, but he wasn't worth mentioning. But still, twenty-two years. It's not bad given the circumstances. Yeah, dynasty, not the program. Doesn't have any children. Mm. It's a big fat zero. He had quite an affectionate relationship with his first wife, uh, Anna Bohemia. And in fact, she died of plague in 1394, and as a result, he had a wing of her favourite palace where she died at Sheen, raised to the ground, because he said he could never visit it again. Wow. Well, was so sad. And quite a cordial relationship with um, the sort of six-year-old Isabella of <laughs> Valois. He played, you know, Old MacDonald, whatever they play. Indeed, but no children. So that's a total score of 47 for uh, Richard II, which... Is quite similar to what Edward II got, 45.5. I think he'd been happy with that. Fairly, well, all, given the circumstances, he's got to be fairly happy. And it's close to <coughs> Edward II, his favourite. So he's favourite, yeah, the best yeah. that you could aspire to. Um, it, do you know, I've just counted, and that's ten uh, monarchs that have, not, have died without children. It's quite a lot. Yeah. Mm. And it's only this tenth occurrence that we've deviated away to another family, and not really another family, to a cousin. Mm. Impressive. Indeed. So, that is the life of Richard II. We've given him his scores, but now we have to do the final judgment. Does he have that long-standing legacy, that great achievement, that star quality which marks him out from the rest? Does he have the... Rex Factor! It's hard to think of many arguments in favour, <laughs> to be honest. Um, he showed it early on, though. At 14, I thought this guy... He showed He's promise the, yeah. the, at the start of the Peasants' Revolt. He showed mm. promise 1389 when he got his country back. He showed promise with the Renaissance court that he was building. But other than that, there's a lot that really doesn't work very yeah. well at all. And it's, and, you, and it's hard. I remember all these different things in, in sections. So I remember him sitting, as you say, sitting on the throne, looking at people, making them... <laughs> Bow. So in all these all these periods of where he's doing good things, he is still acting a bit odd, yeah. which would have you know would have led to less perhaps Rex Factor traits. Mm. So um, I know there's much more we can say no, in terms it's of positive, no, isn't it? Yeah, it's a no for Richard II. He doesn't have the Rex Factor. So that is it for Richard II. That's also it for the direct Plantagenet line. Mm. So now moves on to Henry the Fourth, who is the first Lancastrian king. Oh, we're getting towards the Wars of the Roses. We are now. It's going towards the Wars of the Roses, and it's all a little bit complicated. So we've got a, a new little thing, which I haven't told you about, 
we're going to do. Just like, remember when we did Prince Watch? Oh, yeah. The Saxons, we keep Prince in track Watch. of all the people in charge. Well, now we've got a new one, and this is... Family Fortunes! So, everyone, basically, in the Wars of the Roses, is descended from Edward III. He's the common ancestor of everybody. He has five adult sons who survive. The Black Prince mm. was the eldest, father of Richard II. No children after Richard, so that line dies out. Yeah. The youngest one, um, Thomas Woodstock, who's the Duke of Gloucester, who got murdered mm. in this period. Powerful descendants, but the line doesn't really challenge for the throne again until one rebellious chap in the reign of Henry VIII. So in terms of the Wars of the Roses... He's out of the picture as well. Okay. So the big three are son number two, Lionel of Antwerp. Lionel of Antwerp. Yeah. They were sort of named after where they were born. Yeah. Okay. So John of Gaunt, the third son, which apparently was Ghent. Okay. Called Gaunt at the time. And Edmund of Langley, but then Duke of York. Right. The fourth son. So those are the big three. So John of Gaunt, if we tackle him first. Yeah. He was the Duke of Lancaster. So the House of Lancaster in the Wars of the Roses... John of Gaunt. Comes from John of Gaunt. He marries three times before dying in 1399, and these marriages are all quite important. So the first one is to Blanche of Lancaster. She was the heiress to the duchy, so that's how he gets to be the duke right. in the first place. And their eldest son is Henry Bolingbroke, who becomes Henry IV. So he becomes king. He becomes mm-hmm. king, and that's the Lancastrian line. His second wife is Constance of Castile, who is the princess there, which is how he made his claim to be king of Castile, which failed. But then his third wife is Catherine Swinford. Oh, I have that name ring the bell. I have heard of that name. She was originally governess to his uh, his daughters from his first marriage and became his mistress during his second marriage. And they had four children when she was his mistress, but they became uh, declared legitimate by Richard and the Pope. But then their legitimacy comes and goes a bit. So Henry IV says, no, no, no. Henry V says, oh, yeah, well, all right. So it's not quite clear to what extent mm-hmm. they're considered legitimate in terms of being able to claim the stake for the okay. throne. Yeah. But obviously they might want to do so in the future. He eventually marries her and their children are given the surname of Beaufort. Oh, yeah, yeah, And yeah, the yeah. Beaufort family will ultimately link in with the Welsh family of the Tudors. Yeah. So the Tudor dynasty... Its royal heritage, again, comes from John of Gaunt. Yeah, okay. So, hang on. So we've got, John through of John of Gaunt, the House t- of Lancaster yeah. and the Tudors ultimately get their royal lineage from John of Gaunt. So they're, they're united at this point through John of Gaunt, effectively. Well, uh, the Tudors are yet to come. Yet to come in, but when they're they quite do, a few generations down. That would be the ancestry, yeah. That's the ancestry. Okay. The other ones, then, we've got Lionel and Edmund, the second and fourth son. So Lionel again died in the reign of Edward III, but he was the next oldest son. So technically, Mm. after the Black Prince's children died, it should then be his line. His only child was a girl, Philippa, and she married Edmund Mortimer, who's a descendant of the infamous Roger Mortimer. So we've got them as rivals to the Lancastrians, the Mortimers, but then the male Mortimers die out, but a female, Anne Mortimer, marries one of the descendants of Edmund of York, the other uncle. And that's obviously the Yorkist line. So then we've got these two royal lines from Edward III joined okay. by yeah. marriage, and that is the House of York. OK. They need to inject some more genes into that family. Indeed, they do. But we've got, through John of Gaunt, the House of Lancaster. Yeah. Ultimately, the Tudors. 
and then through Lionel and Edmund, the House of York. It's all going to play out more over the next uh, few weeks in the different episodes, so keep it in mind, but we'll do a refresh. Next time we will do Henry IV, who is the first Lancastrian king. Excellent. Till then, goodbye for me. Cheerio.